Colossians, the third chapter, and our text today is verses 15 through 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. As the famous evangelist preached on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, he noted that there was one man, particularly in the audience, whose face glowed and shined as he spoke on that truth. And over and over again, he would say, as the man was preaching, yes, yes, and that will be glory for me. After the service, the evangelist inquired of someone else, who was that man? And the man said, well, we call him Old Glory Face because of his countenance. Charles H. Gabriel, the songwriter, knew of the same man. And based upon that name, Old Glory Face, and what the man was prone to say in services, that will be glory for me. He wrote that familiar gospel song, Oh, that will be glory for me, glory for me, glory for me, when by his grace I shall look on his face. That will be glory, be glory for me. You and I, who are children of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, have glory to look forward to. I was talking to one of the dear elderly saints of our church yesterday, who is not doing very well, and we talked about the future, and about heaven, and the coming of Christ, and she said, yes, there's something to look forward to. But do you know, in the pace and complexity of our lives, many of us have lost sight of what's ahead for us. The daily issues that are related to family, to work, to money, to emergencies, to health, and all those sorts of things take our eyes off of the glory that is to come. But listen to what God says. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. God calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We have obtained an inheritance. The Holy Spirit of promise is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. We look for the blessed hope and the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The God of all grace called you, called you to his eternal glory in Christ. 
Our outer man is decaying, but our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. We eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what the future holds. But the danger is that we lose sight of the glory to come. And as a result, we become disheartened in trials and weary in our well-doing. The Apostle reminds the Colossian believers and us today that we were called in one body. We have been called by God out of the world to belong to the church, the church which is rich in diversity, but which possesses one calling and one hope. And that one hope that we have is to a destiny that involves a glorious heavenly wedding and an eternal reign then with Jesus Christ on his throne of glory. Having described to us what we're to take off and to put on so that we are dressed for the heavenly wedding, the Apostle Paul in our text today seems to write about rehearsing for that event and what that event will bring to us. He talks about rehearsing here on earth our heavenly calling. In heaven we're going to enjoy peace. In heaven there will be fellowship with the saints of God. In heaven we will be busy praising and singing to the Lord. And in heaven we're going to be serving the Lord. That's what's to come. And so in these three verses he tells us that we are to rehearse right now for what's coming. You and I need to rehearse on earth what we will experience in heaven. How do we do that? What does that mean to rehearse on earth what we will experience in heaven? Well, the apostle begins by saying it means that God's peace that you will know fully in heaven, God's peace will right now rule in your heart. Verse 15. God's peace will rule in your heart. There are four insights about God's peace that he gives us in this verse. First, it is a divine peace. God is its source. In Philippians, the apostle says that when we, with prayer and thanksgiving, bring our petitions to God, then the peace of God that passes all understanding will fill our hearts. It's God's peace. It's God's peace that he gives to us. It is a peace that is transcendent. It's beyond understanding. It's beyond the peace that we can conjure up in this world, that we can generate within ourselves. This peace is not merely an acquiescence. It is not a resignation with the affairs of life, but rather it is a God-provided tranquility. 
that is able to carry us through the pain and the storms of life. Some years ago, there was a submarine that went down deep on a test dive. And when they came up the next day, someone asked the captain, well, did the storm last night bother the submarine? He said, not at all. Not while we're down deep. The storms cannot bother us. When you and I are down deep into the peace of God, the storms of life may rage around us, but our spirit will remain unaffected. A.T. Pearson said, The peace of God is that eternal calm which lies far too deep in the praying, trusting soul to be reached by external disturbances. God's peace will rule in your heart. That peace is a divine peace, but it's also a deciding peace. The peace of God will rule, it says. The word rule is used only here in all of the New Testament. It means to act as a referee, to call the decision. I hope all of you watched Kentucky win yesterday. I am very grateful that Kansas lost before this Final Four because it would have been difficult in our home. I am from Kansas. My wife is from Kentucky. And uh, she was, she is blue, believe me, big blue, through and through. And uh, she watched that game yesterday from beginning to end. I didn't see any calls that were doubtful. There probably were some there. You know, it's tough to be a referee in a game like that, isn't it? A lot of pressure. God's peace needs to be the referee in our lives, is what this verse says. It needs to arbitrate. It needs to decide every debate. Now, in the context, Jerry, I wonder if he's not saying, look, here's what you're to wear to the wedding. You're to wear compassion and forgiveness and so on. And he says, you've got the wrong clothes on. The peace of God's going to blow the whistle on you. You're not going to have peace in your life. You remember when you were younger, you were dressing to go out for a date or maybe it was some school function. And as you were about to go out the door, your mother said, not in those clothes you're not. You remember that? The peace of God says to you and me, not in those clothes, you're not getting ready for the wedding. It blows the whistle on us. It arbitrates. It, it decides for us whether we have the right clothes on or not. But I think by way of application, since he mentions here the body of Christ, he is saying within the body, too, we need to guard peace. Let God's peace decide the conflicts and the differences in the church. Be careful that we do not disturb the peace that God desires for us to experience in the body. In Ephesians it says, Preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called also in one hope of your calling. And so he uses the very same kind of language there in Ephesians 4 as he does in Colossians 3, reminding us that we have been called into one body. And as one body, 
In all of our diversity, we are to let the peace of God rule and govern. The peace of God is divine and deciding. It's also destinal. It is a destinal peace because the peace of God is part of our birthright to enjoy. Paul says that we are called to this peace. We are called in the first place to have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is no longer at war with us. We are no longer at war with God. There is peace between us because of the work of the cross. Because we have trusted in the Savior, we have been justified by faith, and hostility has ceased, there is peace with God. I hope you have that peace with God this morning as a Christian. But then he says that we also are heirs of the peace of God. The peace like we're talking about here. The peace that we are destined to enjoy. Jesus said on that night before he went to the cross, Peace I leave with you. Now here is one who is facing death by crucifixion within hours. Here is one who is about to undergo suffering unlike any man has ever endured, and he knew it, and yet he says to his disciples, Peace, I leave with you. He says, My peace I give to you. I don't know what you are passing through or what you may be about to pass through, but this I do know, the peace of God is your birthright. And while you can choose to be disturbed and upset and anxious, you can also choose to enjoy the birthright that God's given you, his peace in the midst of those circumstances. So enjoy it. And when you do that, when you choose to enter into that peace, You'll be preparing and rehearsing for what heaven's going to be like. God's peace will rule in your hearts. It's a divine peace. It is a deciding peace. It is a destinal peace. But finally, it's also a delicate peace. This peace of God is like a fragile plant. It blossoms in the right environment. But if you take away that environment, it tends to wilt. And what is the environment? Well, he explains. He says, and be thankful. It is the environment of a thankful spirit in which the peace of God blooms and flourishes. It is a delicate peace. Curtis Vaughn says, in all inner conflicts as well as in all disputes and differences among Christians, Christ's peace must give the final decision. We are to do nothing that would violate that peace. Gratitude is, is intimately associated with peace. The peace of God. One man said to another, Your wife used to be terribly nervous. Now she's very calm and collected. What happened? 
The other man said the doctor told her that her nervousness was the usual sign of advancing age. Well, I suppose that that will do it in some cases, my friend, but we have something more than the threat of advancing age that should calm our hearts, and that is the peace of God. When you and I allow the peace of God to rule in our hearts and in our fellowship, then we will be rehearsing for heaven because, my friend, there will be peace in heaven for us to enjoy. Now, secondly, he tells us that as we re- rehearse for heaven, it means that God's, that Christ's word will reside in our relationships. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, it says. A Christ's word here probably means the sum message of Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has done on our behalf as our Savior, Christ's work, Christ's person. But in a broader sense, it refers to all that God has revealed to us in his living word, Jesus Christ, and in his written word, the Bible. He is saying that what God has said to us, we are to allow to reside, to settle down and to be at home within us. We are to let it take residence and not be a stranger. Christ's word is to be at home in you. In other words, it is to govern our lives. Bob Gromacki writes, It is one thing for the believer to be in the Word. It is another for the Word to have free access to all parts of his life. Half of the books of the Bible can be read in less than 45 minutes. Did you know that? And many of those can be read in less than 20 minutes. And yet so often we say we don't have time to read God's Word. The entire Old Testament and New Testament can be read in about 71 hours. One woman I read about has read the entire Bible, all 66 books, 143 times, and at 85 years of age was reading it through again. Let What God has said to you, be at home in your heart. But it means more than just taking the Bible in. It means to give our hearts to the Bible. Giving our hearts to Christ. It means allowing God and what he has said to us to govern our lives. Someone made the statement recently, I don't care what the Bible says. I'll worry about that later. I know what I want to do. Now, before we point the finger at that person, we have to back up and say, how often does that reflect my own attitude? If the word of Christ is at home within us, it means that it will govern our lives and we will submit to what it says even if what it says doesn't agree with what we want to do.
God's Word is to be at home in you. But not only that, when God's Word resides in your relationships, it not only be at home in you, it will be a help to others. Because the Apostle says after it's residing in you, then you need to, with all wisdom, teach and admonish others. With all wisdom, that is, with discretion and with tact. By the leading of God, you and I are to teach and to admonish others that we have relationships with. To teach them means to instruct them in a positive way. To teach another what God says doesn't mean to beat them over the head with the Bible. There are some people who do that and then they wonder why their friend turns against them. We can't beat people up with the Bible and expect a positive response. That's not wisely teaching them. But with wisdom, we are to instruct, to help them understand what God has said, and we are to admonish. To admonish means to warn. It means to correct. Back in chapter 1, verse 28, the apostle has already said something about this. He says, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Same language, isn't it? But Paul says, here's what I'm doing, and now you are to do that too. Let God's Word govern your life, and once it has ruled in your own heart, once it is there residing and is at home, then you are able to teach others, and to warn and to correct them, to spare them from the injuries that will come to those who ignore God's Word. Christ's word will reside, it says, in your relationships. That means that it's at home in you. It means that it's a help to others. Thirdly, it means that it's a hymn to God. Depends on where you put the punctuation in this verse. And in the Greek language, Greek New Testament, there's no punctuation. And it makes as good a sense to me as any to put together the last part of that verse saying with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing with thankfulness rather than saying teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with psalms and hymns and songs that the spirit generates within us we're to sing with with thankfulness in our hearts to god you see, when Christ's Word is at home within us, it will not only govern our lives and enable us to help others, but it will be reflected back to God in a hymn of praise and thanksgiving. Warren Wisby writes, To be filled with the Spirit of God means to be controlled by the Word of God. If you want to understand what he's saying, go back to Ephesians 5, verse 18, verse 19, and notice that Paul uses very similar language there when he says, and be filled with the Spirit. If you compare those two passages, it's hard for me to do that with one of my hands tied up with this microphone this morning, which I am doing because I still am suffering from what I had last week. 
How many of you were not here? No, I better not ask that. You missed last week. You missed an intermission in the sermon. And boy, everybody sat up and paid attention. We might do that again today, Paul. And that's why I have this, as a matter of fact, so I can get away from you if I have to cough. But if you compare those two passages, you will find that the same results occur when one is filled with the Spirit and when one has the Word of God at home within him. And so Wiersbe says, to be filled with the Spirit simply means for the Word of God to control you. My friend, the Word of God is going to control heaven. The Word of God is going to be at home in heaven. And so he tells us we're to rehearse right now that Word of God being at home in us so that we're prepared when we get there. A third, verse 17, he tells us that rehearsing now for our heavenly calling means that your service will represent Christ in your world. You know, there are a few rules in the Bible regarding do or don't. But in the New Testament, the Spirit is not so much that of rules as that of principles. For God gives us a principle. He says, now apply this. And that's what verse 17 is. It's a wonderful principle. It is a principle for our service. He tells us first regarding our service for Christ that that service embraces our every effort. He says, whatever you do. Literally, it it means, and everything, whatever you do. That's not real smooth English, so they don't put it that way here, but in the text of my Bible, but that's what it means. And in everything, whatever you do. So often we divide the sacred and the secular, don't we? We say, boy, I'm, I've got to be faithful to that Sunday school class I'm teaching. I've got to be faithful in working in the nursery, and that's great. That's great. But we ought also to see the work that we do on Monday in the office, on that computer, as our service for Christ. Or whatever we do, seeing that as an opportunity to serve the Lord. It embraces our every effort. God is the Lord of both sacred and secular as we divide them. There's no difference to him. Not only does it embrace our every effort, it enables our very existence. He says, you are to do this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, exactly what he means here has some debate. There are several ways to look at this. But I think the best way is to say this, that when you do something in the name of someone else, what you are doing there is acting as a representative of someone else. When you pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, you are praying as his representative to the Father. You recognize the position that you have as a believer in him. And you have delegated authority given to you. And so you pray in his name. You say, in Jesus' name I pray. Well, it says here that we're to serve in Jesus' name. We're to understand that our existence is all about being who we are in Jesus Christ. 
and serving Him in this world and understanding that He has delegated us to be His representatives in all of our relationships. So wherever we go, whoever we talk with, whatever we do, whatever we say, we're to do that remembering that our existence is about serving Jesus Christ and we should ask ourselves, at least subconsciously, how can I serve Jesus in this situation? Now, why is this important? Because you're rehearsing. Remember that. You're rehearsing. In heaven, you're going to serve. There are those who believe, and I tend to agree with this, that in the new heavens and the new earth, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to extend his reign throughout all of that new universe through his redeemed church. And as you have faithfully served him here, he will give you part of his kingdom to rule over. Maybe you'll have a planet out there somewhere. And you're going to be his representative there. Overseeing that part of his creation and his kingdom. And so the apostle is saying, you need to rehearse right now. Understand that everything you do is a rehearsal for what's to come. For you will serve our Lord then, even now you are to see that everything you do is service for him in the world. During the reign of Oliver Cromwell in England, it seems that there was a shortage of currency in the British Empire. Today there seems to be a shortage of sane beef. That's bad, isn't it? cows but in those days there was a shortage of currency and so they searched everywhere to find enough silver to melt down to make some more currency and to their dismay they could not find any except in the cathedrals where there were statues of the saints that were made of the very finest of silver and so Oliver Cromwell replied let's melt down the saints and put them into circulation and dear friend, that's what God needs to do today. He wants to melt down his saints and put us into circulation in the world. Some of you met the gentleman who is the director of the Billy Graham Crusade when he was here a couple of months ago for an event during the week. Uh, Rick, at a meeting this last week, was telling us about being in Charlotte last week. And uh, he and a friend of his were in his car. They were driving from one event to another in a hurry, so they pulled into Wendy's to get a hamburger. And as he was waiting for the hamburger to come there at the window, as you do, you know, uh, the telephone rang in his car. And it was Billy Graham. And so here he is sitting at Wendy's, getting his hamburgers, talking to Billy Graham, and on the other side there's a homeless person knocking at the window wanting something to eat. And so he's got all of these things going on at once. But Billy Graham said to him, referring to the Minneapolis crusade coming up, you know, Rick, what it's going to take for God to do what he wants to do in Minneapolis, it's going to take broken hearts, and bended knees. 
Doesn't that summarize it pretty well? If God is going to do what he wants to in the church of Jesus Christ in this area in the coming months, it's going to take our broken hearts and our bended knees. And as we allow the Lord to break our hearts for the lost and really care and have compassion, be clothed with a heart of compassion for them, as we get dressed up as we're supposed to for our wedding, and as we rehearse by doing everything in the name and the, as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we do that, then God's going to be able to do a mighty work in this area. He's already begun. A couple of weekends ago, there was an event for the youth down in St. Paul. And uh, 11,500 teens showed up, paid five bucks apiece for tickets to get into this event. My understanding is they've never had a response like that to that teen event in other cities. And out of the 11,500 teens that, that came that night, at least 1,050 of them came forward at the invitation, responded to what Ron Hutchcraft had to say in presenting the gospel to them. More responded than that, but the fire marshal wouldn't let any more of them in the room where they were counseling. It was filled capacity so they had to turn them away god is beginning to stir in this area and you and i want to be a part of that we don't want to miss what god wants to do and you and i can be a part of it if we'll just start rehearsing and we'll begin letting the peace of god rule in our hearts and letting christ's word reside in our relationships and our service representing christ in our world Child of God, you've been called to glory. God has destined you for heaven, and so now is the time to rehearse and to rehearse well. Are you preparing for it? Are you preparing for it? In an article entitled, Are We Ready for Heaven?, Maurice Irwin points out to us that only 34% of the American people who call themselves Christians attend church at least once a week. And he goes on to say, We sing when all my labors and trials are o'er, and I am safe on that beautiful shore. Just to be near the dear Lord I adore will through the ages be glory for me. But he says, unless our attitudes toward the Lord and our appreciation of him change greatly, Heaven will be more of a shock than the glory. We're called to glory. Let's keep that before us in this world with its trials and its storms. And let's be busy rehearsing for what we will inherit by the grace of God. Let's pray. With our heads bowed, I wonder what the Spirit of God may be saying to you. In just a moment, I'm going to open the front here for prayer. And if you would like to come and have prayer with me after we've dismissed, I invite you to slip out and come to the front. I don't know what the issue may be in your life or what God has said. If you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to come that you might trust the Savior. If you are a Christian and there is not peace in your heart, Christ's word is not 
at home within you, you've been ignoring it. If you've been living life on your own and not his service to Jesus Christ, I want to urge you to change today. To commit yourself afresh to who you are in Christ and what Christ has called you to become. We're going to sing a verse or two of a closing hymn. And when we do, as we sing, I want to invite you to slip out and come. And just stand here, and then after we've dismissed, I'll have prayer with those who come as a group. Now, Father, I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you will accomplish in my heart and the heart of every one of us what you want to do. Help us to see this life as preparation for heaven. Forgive us when we allow this life with all of its concerns and its worries to overwhelm us, to take our eyes off the goal. Lord, help us to look ahead and to get prepared and to begin that process anew, perhaps, even today. In Jesus' name, amen. Good